Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, this week you had the interview. You spoke with Roy Schwartz, who is the president and co-founder of Axios. So Axios, obviously, um, among the newer uh, media companies onto the scene. And I, I guess the question we always have with these newer media companies is the profitability question. Are they profitable? What are their hopes for turning a profit? Um, what did Roy have to say about Axios's profitability? Yeah, actually, Roy was very candid about um, profitability and revenue from this year. Um, he gets into the overall revenue picture for what Axios experienced in 2021, but they are profitable um, and they have been for a few years. It's interesting how he describes it because it is a newer media company. He still sees Axios as a startup. And so he says that they're at a place where they really want to invest in growing the company. So that means investing profit into further development. But because of the pandemic, they kind of took a really... Um, buckled down wait and see approach. So they stopped hiring, they stopped paying for, um, you know, business travel and, and some of those expenses. And that led to them reserving a lot of revenue. And it helped them remain profitable last year and the year before. Um, well, yeah, I guess it's almost two years now of pandemic. So it helped them stay profitable during that time. But he says it wasn't at the fault of them like not wanting to invest it and using that for continued growth. So he goes into um, you know, what he kind of anticipates being a, a year of investment in 2022 and using that revenue to really continue growing. Got it. And one way that some media companies are growing is by combining with other media companies. We've, you know, been in this, you know, kind of prolonged wave of consolidation among media companies and um, you know, BuzzFeed is about to close its you know, merger with or acquisition of Complex and go public via SPAC. Did Roy talk about like how Axios is looking at the M&A landscape and what ambitions they have to merge or acquire or be acquired? Yeah. So one of the reasons why I did want to have Axios on the podcast was because this past year they've been having a number of conversations around M&A. Um, there was talk, I think, in May around them uh, merging with The Athletic. There was talks, uh, I think, over the summer about potentially um, being bought by Axel Springer. Um, and, and those didn't pan out. They are still an independent media company. But I was curious like what kind of led to that conversation starting and then ultimately ending. And Roy gets into the fact that they really are in this growth period and we get into three of the bigger businesses that they've launched and have kind of um, been investing in and how those three businesses are something that they really want to have control over and don't want to rely on a potential parent company or another company to continue that growth. Um, they see a lot of uh, potential for these businesses. So we get into it, but those businesses are their local media business. They also have a software as a service business called Axios HQ, and then they have their new subscription product, um, Pro, which is launching next month. And they really wanted to be in control of their own kind of destiny with those and felt like, at least the way Roy describes it, um, they felt like a merger wouldn't really let them do that. 
So they think it's a little premature. They're still entertaining these conversations. Um, they've acquired other smaller publishers um, in the past to help their local media business grow. Um, and while they're still kind of keeping their eye out on what could happen in this space, they aren't actively having any conversations, um, which Roy talks more about in the episode. Got it. All right. I'm excited to hear what all he has to say about that. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Hi, Roy. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you doing? Hi, Kaylee. It's good to hear from you again. I'm doing well. Awesome. So I really wanted to have Axios on the podcast for some of our end-of-year um, episodes because I feel like I've been following Axios's business very closely over the past year. There's been a lot of exciting uh, business announcements, but also coverage of Axios going on. Um, and I really wanted to speak with you and kind of dig into some of those exciting changes and also what your outlook is for 2022. Um, but I guess to kick it off, um, it has been quite an exciting year. And on the last episode um, of the podcast, I was speaking with um, Condé Nast, Pam Druckerman. And one of the questions I asked her was how 2020 felt compared to 2021. Because um, I feel like 2020 was a very challenging business year. A lot of things were frozen in place. You couldn't really innovate too much. Whereas 2021 felt like a year of a lot of innovation and growth for a lot of the media industry. And I wanted to ask you, did you feel like going into 2021 that there would be so much um, potentially affecting your business in both a positive way, but also in a growth um, trajectory? Like, did 2021 feel like it was going to be such a big year for Axios? Well, we were, um, 2020 was really interesting because we thought COVID would have a very big negative impact on our business, I think, as, as every media company did. Mm-hmm. But uh, and and we froze all spending. We um, stopped all hiring. I mean, we took some pretty drastic action. We didn't lay anyone off. Um, we committed to keeping everyone, including our event staff, which at that moment in time, a lot of media companies had let their event staff go. And actually, I would say that we had a lot of innovation in 2020. So we were very fortunate because the type of advertising that we do, which is corporate social responsibility advertising, did not see a decline. In fact, we grew 40% in 2020. Now, we could not have known that in March, right? In March, it will seem like the, the, the world was going to end or something. Um, but that's actually what happened. It grew 40%. We had maybe a couple of cancellations, but then other people actually spent more money um, and wanted to tell their story because it was a very important time to talk about what companies were doing in terms of social good. At the same time, I think there was a a ton of innovation taking place on the event side of our business. So obviously, all in-person events completely ceased. We jumped on um, virtual events, and our events team just did a superb job. And we were probably the first ones there. We we turned around and started doing virtual events, I think, in April. And we did 100 virtual events in 2020 and did that again in, in 2021. So the innovation that you're talking about, I think, started for us in 2020. And we were very... Mm -hmm lucky that we had always been remote. Um, So we had lots of remote employees. Everyone had already Slack and Zoom and, you know, their laptops. And so it wasn't as difficult a transition for us to go fully remote. And I would say the thing that we saw that I think a lot of companies have seen is that productivity during this time has been incredibly high. Um, 2020 and 2021, you know, sees, I think, sky high levels of productivity from everyone. I think there is still a downside, which is 
if you're not getting people together, if you're not um, in person, then it's much harder, I think, to establish a, a deeper connection um, and really work on culture. So I think there's positives and negatives to what to what we're seeing, but you're correct, I think, in that there's been a lot of innovation in the media space. And 2021 has been a huge growth year, again, not just for us this time, but I think for, for everyone in the media space, as they've come to terms with the way things are changing and um, the way in which they have to innovate in order to survive. And anytime there's something big like this and there's a spark of uh, creativity, you're going to see lots of great new ideas and some that work and some that don't. Um, we've taken the opportunity to launch a bunch of new businesses, right? So we, we launched HQ, which you covered. Uh, we just launched uh, Pro, which is our uh, paid content, which is going to launch in January. So, you know, we're, we're about ready to start that. Um, and it's just been, you know, the, the local uh, growth has been staggering. So we're, we're launching into 25 cities next year, and that's going to be very exciting. Yeah, and I, I want to get into all of those different um, business initiatives um, later in the in the episode. But I guess to kind of continue on this um, conversation around 2021 being a positive business year for a, a lot of the industry, um, can you kind of elaborate on what that means for Axios from a revenue perspective? At the end of this year, are you you know you know looking at profitability status? Are you looking at um, year-over-year growth from a revenue standpoint? I know you mentioned um, last year advertising was up about 40%, but what's 2021 looking like? S- same thing, another 40% year-over-year growth. We'll hit over $86 million in revenue um, this year, which is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've been profitable for the last three years and in the year before that was break even. So we've been either profitable or break even for four years running. Um, we don't actually, we don't try and be profitable. We're still in growth mode. We're trying to actually invest that money. But I think what it just became very difficult to do during COVID hiring has been difficult. So, you know, we started 2020 with a plan to lose money. Um, but because we froze all investments, we ended up making money last year. And then this year, we went in again saying we're going to invest a lot of money, which we did do, but hiring has just been very difficult. It's much slower than we anticipated. And so, you know, we've we've not been able, we, we'll be profitable, but it's not necessarily on puts. So lots of investment, it looks like, or it sounds like from um, hiring and also just general business growth. You were starting to touch on um, the conversation around work culture and this I guess, return to in-person to a degree. Um, can you talk a little bit about your strategy there? Have you reopened the office? I see you're in a podcast in studio, office, so yeah. I imagine you're in the office. Yeah. Um, what's that kind of been like? Because I know that in reopening offices and getting business kind of back into gear, there are added costs with that too. Is that some areas that you're starting to like unfreeze the budget? Are you starting to send people out on you know business trips again? Like, What's that kind of um, side of the equation? It's such an interesting time from a business strategy standpoint. You know, what do you do with office space, and um, you know, do you invite people to come back in? So this office has been open for quite a while. I would say that there's only, you know, usually there were 150 people here. There's maybe only 20 or 30 in any given day. Most people are working remotely, and they might come in two, three days a week. Some people are here every day, um, but that I would say that's that's very few. the same is true for our other offices. So we have an office in uh, New York. And we have an office in Charlotte. Um, we used to have an office space in San Francisco, but we gave that up. 
Um, the office space in New York, we're debating right now whether we renew a lease, um, do a new lease, do something different. Um, you know, it's a very difficult time to figure out, you know, what does the next couple of years look like? And every time I think that we're coming out of it, there's a new variant or something else that pops up that makes me think that it will be remote for quite a while. Um, what we are trying to think about is how do we get people together? And so we are planning retreats. We are planning, um, and we've done some retreats already uh, in person. So uh, we try and get people together. We encourage if people want to meet up, we will encourage that. We will pay for their flights. We will pay for their meals. We will get them to, to meet together. We think that's really important, that it, it's it's great having a remote first culture, but at the same time, you crave that human interaction, people meeting, getting to know each other, talking about things other than work. We've done a lot of very fun things on Zoom where we've done games and we've done happy hours, but it's not the same as when you're in person and you're really getting to know somebody. So we, we are very much encouraging people to do dinners and other things like that. And we are happy to pay for those things when, when employees want to do them. Got it. And you're in your DC office, is that right? This is our, yeah, it's actually Arlington, Virginia, um, but it's it's right across the water from DC. Got it. Right. So that's really interesting. So I guess I'm curious, like, what are some of the retreats that you've done so far? Um, and I guess how involved were they? Because I feel like that's been one area of our... Um, we have a new vertical called Work Life at Digiday, and we've been covering some of the ways in which like company culture has been addressed um, with retreats being kind of a topic in that area. What have you kind of done in that like retreat kind of model? Mainly it's been small teams. So what we've pulled together is a management team or a leadership team or an individual small unit, and they've gone together. So there's um, a couple of local I'll say resorts is probably too big a word, but but hotels around here that are, you know, maybe an hour outside of the city that are just a nice setting to get people together. And so we've done a couple of those where people go to that that location, that hotel, stay overnight, do a dinner, do a lunch, um, you know, several meetings. And we encourage actually a lot of conversation not about work because as I mentioned, productivity is really high. People talk about work all the time. What we mm -hmm. actually want is we want them to get to know each other as individuals. And so we're encouraging them to meet, get together, have fun, have a dinner, um, and just get to know each other. Got it. Yeah. I was curious if it was more so tied to maybe focusing on some of the new business launches, right? Like your SaaS business or even like pro. Um, but that's, I think that's really important to allow it to be just focused on the kind of interpersonal connections that you have. That's really cool. We've, we've definitely done meetings to talk about HQ or pro or local. And those have been fantastic because those teams, a lot of them have never met in person. So the ability to get them together and uh, sometimes for the very first time to meet has been incredible. Um, I've met a lot of people that I've interacted on Zoom and I feel like I know them, but I haven't actually talk to them before in real life. So it, that's been, that's been fantastic. And then when you launch, you know, three different businesses all remote, you know, it's, um, it can be challenging. I think we're very fortunate that one of the tools, one of the businesses we have is a communication tool, right? So HQ uh, is a communication tool specifically designed for internal communication. We use it uh, internally a lot and it's been fantastic. It's allowed us to stay on the same page because Basically, every business line and every even down to the manager level, every team 
is writing an update once a week in Smart Brevity, just like one of our newsletters, that covers in um, a hierarchical fashion what are the things that are most important to them. And that has kept everyone on the same page. There's complete clarity about what everyone is doing, which order they're doing it in. And if there's a problem, they bring it up in that update that they send once a week. So I feel like that has been hugely helpful to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I do want to get into the um, Axios HQ business because, um, like you mentioned, I have covered this a couple of times when it launched and then also kind of a um, I believe it was like a nine-month check-in or so. I think that's a really interesting business model because while a lot of SaaS businesses, um, software as a service businesses, are focused on um, like CMSs or um, other kind of like products to run a business, the Axios HQ, to your point, is more a communications tool. But it's also, in a way, an IP extension of Axios because Smart Brevity is trademarked and is used in, like, that's the identifying kind of nature of Axios um, newsletters. But I thought that that was a really interesting business. Um, You kind of gave a brief overview of it, but can you also kind of get into some of the revenue stats for the people who haven't maybe been familiar with the um, reporting that's been done on it? Um, I think you mentioned it was estimated to be about $1.5 million of purely software licensing revenue, right? That's right. Yeah. And we may even, it looks like we're on track to do 1.6 million um, as mm-hmm. of right now. So it, it's been a fantastic run. We launched the business around February of this year. So it's it's been just you know going gangbusters, uh, which has been great. For, for anyone who doesn't know about it, basically what happened was we had a lot of companies that reached out to us that said, we love reading the Axios newsletters. We love the format we can't get people to read our internal updates. And we think that this format could really be helpful to get people to read internal updates. And at first we said, that's not our business. We're a media business, but we had so many people ask us for it that we said, let's, let's investigate. And so we did a a number of demos, a number of trials, and it just worked fantastically. The open rates and the engagement rates went up. So now we have nearly 200 customers that are purely paying for the software the software helps you collaborate and write a update of your business or business unit. Uh, it could be a note from the CEO. It could be about DE&I, and it gets sent out to a team or to the entire company. And so that, I think, during COVID and remote work has been a huge issue because I would say that companies are not suffering from a lack of vision or a lack of strategy I would say right now, they're really suffering from a lack of communication. How do you get through to everyone? How do you keep everyone on the same page? And Axios HQ allows you to do that. It it really does, in a a quick, concise way, tell you what's happening within your organization or within your team, and you're able to do it within just a a couple of minutes, and it gives you a structure um, with which to write. There's a lot of we have five years of editing from the newsroom that we've used as a as an AI tool to help people write and to help people communicate. So picture it sort of as a Grammarly, but for uh, you know clear communication. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think what's also what I found really interesting is that it's not just other media companies that are using this. Um, I believe it was like. Uh, a school district or like a, a mayoral office was using it too. Like it, it's, you're able to find clients that are outside of the industry. How have you gone about that kind of focus? Like who are you targeting with selling Axios HQ to? 
Yeah, I would, it's nearly a hundred percent outside of media. Actually, we we don't um, we don't cater to media companies because usually they want to use it for external purposes. So mm. nearly a hundred percent of our clients are outside of media. They're using it for internal communications, but it really is interesting. It's school districts. You're right that there's a, a mayor's office that uses it. Um, there's large companies um, that use it. Uh, there's small companies that use it. There's teams within companies that use it. It actually, um, I don't say it's a problem, but you know, we, we're trying to figure out like what is what is the lowest hanging fruit. It's really hard to figure out because the number of use cases are so high. That's good in the sense that it tells us there's a really large total addressable market. Um, it's difficult when you're thinking about well, how do I market to people in order to to say that this tool is exactly right for them. What we figured out is that the majority of our clients right now, at least, are small to medium-sized businesses. We do have some really large accounts, but I would say the majority are small to medium-sized businesses. They usually have 200 to, I would say, 1,000 employees. Um, And the reason that they're reaching out is because they've just sort of hit that inflection point where it's really hard to communicate to a couple hundred people. And if they're moving quickly, it's it's even more difficult. So... um, what we focus on right now is a lot of people who are reading Axios because they're already familiar with the format and who need it for their own companies or their associations or whatever their organization may be. That's our focus right now. So you'll see if you come to our website at the bottom of our newsletters, there's a little ad that says, you know, if you'd like to write like this, you can contact us at Axios HQ. Um, we do a lot of events to talk about how to write in smart brevity, give people best practices and thought leadership around it. That's that's our focus at the moment. I will say next year, one of our focuses is to go beyond the Axios audience. And we've seen this already with some clients where they've heard from someone else or they've, you, you know, uh, we've had a lot of people who've moved to a new job and they've taken it with them and they're convincing their boss who maybe hasn't heard of Axios in order to use it. So we're starting to see that flywheel start to turn where um, mm. people moving from one organization to another, or we just had one where uh, your point on the school district, a parent read the update that was being sent out by that school district, had a company of his own, uh, liked the format, reached out to us, and we just closed a software deal for nearly $10,000 from someone who read you know, the update from their school district. I think it's a really interesting approach also to getting beyond like an advertising first um, revenue strategy, right? So there's the subscription business, which I want to talk about pro in a second. Um, But there's also this kind of like, you know, selling a product, selling software as an uh, alternate revenue stream that is more like cyclical, it's more um, recurring revenue. Um, I think that that was a really interesting approach to that revenue stream that isn't always the first, you know, thought of strategy for media companies. But you are doing a subscription service now, a membership model that's pro. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you decided to kind of approach it at, at this stage in the business? Yeah, if you go back to, and I've, I've done this just for fun, to our first pitch, uh, it was that we wanted 50% of our revenue to come from advertising and the other 50% to come from sustainable subscription type services. And we've been focused on that from day one. What is that service that we're going to provide? Pro is very obvious. We always knew we were going to do paid content at some point. The reason that it, you know, we've waited five years to do it is that the advertising business grew much quicker than we anticipated, and the audience grew much quicker than anticipated. 
And we felt we didn't want to put a barrier up for people to read content, get to know our brand before, you know, we were, we were big enough. Um, and so now at this point, we are large enough, we have a large enough audience where we can now um, put up um, new content. So th there's nothing that we do now that will suddenly have a paywall, but new content um, that we're creating will have a paywall. So we are launching into deals is, is the first place that we're going. So if you're familiar with Dan Primack and ProRata, he covers all the deals in the private equity venture capital space. Very interesting, especially right now, there's so much happening. And we're going to launch paid products that go deeper, deeper into different aspects of the different deals from different industries. And so we'll make that available uh, as a paid product. We already have a wait list of a few thousand people who've signed up just based on knowing that this is coming in January, which has been fantastic to see. So the need is there. We know the need is there. We know that we can create great content that people pay for. Um, we have a history of doing that. You know, before we were at Axios, we helped with Politico Pro, which has been a fantastic success as a subscription product. That's in the policy space of a different space, but this, you know, helping people understand any industry, as long as you can make it something that they need in order to do their jobs, people will pay for it. And that, that's the, I think the beauty of the last few years have shown us that people will pay for content if it's good content, if they need it to do their jobs. Um, or they're passionate about the topic. And so we are moving into that space um, this coming year. And I think you'll see deals is just the first. We'll add other areas uh, as time goes on. Right. And so for this kind of deeper dive into the industries that you're going to be including in the pro product, is it in that same smart brevity style or are you going more like long form content to try and offer, I guess, a different voice maybe, or like a different style? Um, because, you know, to a degree, I think there's a lot of value in just getting the information, you know, as quickly and um, effectively as possible. But some people do want that deeper dive. Is that kind of the strategy here for Pro? Or do you still see Smart Brevity being kind of the center of your editorial strategy? So I think it I define smart brevity probably a little bit differently than than, than you do. Um, brevity in its purest form is how to convey the, the correct amount of information in the most efficient way possible. It doesn't actually mean that it's going to be short. It might be shorter than than uh, you know someone who's who's just writing to to write. We're thinking of efficiency with everything that we do. So smart brevity is always going to be at the heart of anything that Axios does, whether it's in video, audio written form, whatever we create, we firmly believe that the most important thing in the future will be time. That how people use time, how people spend time is going to be the greatest asset that they have. It's the one thing that none of us, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how many assistants we have, no matter anything else, uh, we can't generate more time. And so we firmly believe that if we can get you the information that you need, but always do it in the most efficient way possible, that will be rewarded for that, whether through advertising dollars or through uh, subscription products. There are definitely times where the topic is so complex that you need a lot more information that can be conveyed in one or two screens of your phone. So that's where we have go deeper. It's always still written in smart brevity. So it always still follows our sort of trademark look, feel, um, and focus on efficiency. But it may take five, six screens. It may take 10 items. It might be a 10-minute read, which you know on Axios would be unusual. 
but you have seen that, um, you know, when we've done deep reporting in certain areas, um, even look at some of our podcasts, we will go very deep. I think we always adhere to smart brevity, but, but there are topics that just need more time. That doesn't necessarily, I, you know, I don't count that as long form. I think of it more as, you know, what, how do I convey this information as efficiently as possible, even when it's very detailed? And um, we, we have one client, for example, on the HQ side that has to deliver very important safety information. So it can't be shortcutted, right? But we were still able to um, about half the length of all of the documents and still convey the same amount of information. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back. You mentioned Political Pro as kind of the example of that you helped build that business back in the day. Um, is the Pro product at Axios, are you, I guess, pricing it similarly? So it's more focused on um, companies paying for maybe, I think they're called enterprise subscriptions, or are you like targeting individuals? Like what's the pricing strategy for that business? It's a great question. It's starting as actually an individual subscription. So you'll be able to sign up individually. Um, you know, professionals will be able to sign up individually to get the content. I do think there'll still be enterprise licenses. And we just sold one where when you have, let's say hundreds of um, professionals in that industry who need access to information, it probably pays to do an enterprise license versus have each of them individually subscribe. So we will pursue both strategies, but the difference is, is that if you wanted to, you as an individual could subscribe to Axios Pro. You would only do that if you were in that industry. It's going to be very, you know, detailed information. So, it, you know, it's not going to cover things I think that the general public will be interested in. It will cover things that if you're in the finance industry or in the media industry um, that you will want to pay for. Right. Yeah. Help you do your job better. So I guess what's the... What's the pricing model that you have? Have you kind of figured that one out yet? Uh, we're actually testing a few things out right now. So when it launches in January, you'll, you'll be able to see the final pricing. But we have basically tried different price points and uh, also bundles. So especially within the deal space, uh, a, a, a type of in, uh, company might be interested in all of the different areas that we're going to cover, in which case they're better off buying a bundle than they are buying them individually. So it'll be um, probably for an individual anywhere from, you know, in the high hundreds to the low thousands, depending on how many different uh, areas they they want us to cover. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Wow. That's that's still like a, a pretty substantial subscription revenue for you guys. Um, interesting. And then you had mentioned earlier too that hiring has been a priority, but it's been kind of like a slow rolling process. Um, are these two of the businesses, so Pro and also HQ, are those two of the businesses that you're primarily focused on right now, especially on the tech side? Because, you know, a subscription business obviously needs its own tech stack as well. Um, how have you kind of been looking at hiring for these new businesses as you roll them out? That That's probably been the most difficult challenge, I think, of 2021 is, is hiring enough people for the growth that we anticipate. And obviously, we're not alone in, in this challenge. The um, businesses that we've launched, three businesses, right? We have HQ, Local, and Pro, and each of them needs a fairly large staff in order for it to be successful. And we have a, a dedicated recruiting team, and we also hire outside recruiters, but we have a dedicated internal recruiting team. We have a great HR, P 
people team um, that, that's working on not just hiring, but also onboarding and training and, and helping train managers. So we're working on all of those things. But I would say right now, it is a challenge to um, find and recruit, all, especially on the engineering side, the, the talent that you want. Um, the nice part about being remote is now you can hire people anywhere. I think one of the challenges that we have is telling the story that we're not just a media company, that you know our SaaS technology is actually a technology-first company. The entire product is, is a technology product, right? There's not uh, an editorial side to our SaaS business. And so engineering is, is the product. And so we need to hire really talented engineers. So getting the word out there, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Axios is well-known, but it's well-known as a media company. So hiring um, engineers to work on a SaaS product uh, when you know they, they, they may, not, may only know us from our HBO show or from our newsletters or from the website you know, can be challenging. Right. So I do want to talk a little bit about um, the trend of mergers and acquisitions as well. Um, so earlier this year, there were a couple instances where Axios was in the news about talking with um, potentially merging with The Athletic um, or being acquired by Axel Springer. And both of those things didn't ultimately end up happening, but it was something that was at least being considered um, in the overall media space. Um, but I wanted to know kind of like how you're anticipating M&A coming into the picture in 2022. Um, Axios has also been the acquiring person in the mix when it comes to your local media business. So you've been scooping up some of these smaller local publications. Um, but are you still, you know, on the hunt for a larger media partner or perhaps even a, a software partner if you're still growing that business and trying to be seen as more of an engineering um, software company? What's your I guess, focus on M&A and I guess why did the conversations earlier this year not, you know, develop into an actual deal um, being closed? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there's a lot of activity right now and a lot of excitement on all of the mergers, acquisitions that are taking place, especially in the media business. I think we are always open to having discussions and learning more about potential partners, potential investors. And so we did that, you know, over the last couple of years, we've had a lot of good conversations to learn more about who's out there, what are they looking for, what are they trying to do, and does it line up with our vision? I think ultimately what we've decided is that we have an incredibly fast-growing business. We have several really large um, opportunities in front of us with these different business lines. And we think it's too early at this point to sell the business uh, or, to, or to merge it with something um, that would be larger than we are. We want to see how those play out and they're playing out you know, in real time. So our local business and HQ business has really grown incredibly well this, this year. And so we're very encouraged by that. We want to invest more in it. Um, you know, We just did a round to, to be able to invest more in the next couple of years. I think the thing that we'd probably be most on the hunt for in 2022 would be really good investment partners, people that see the vision that we have, especially with HQ. It's an area where um, having, having people who really understand the SaaS space and can help us in the next few years as we anticipate you know, exponential growth, it would be great to have a couple of partners who've done that before and can be very helpful. So I think we'll continue looking for great partners in, in that area. Um, I think we also will look for acquisitions, but it's less likely to be 
the, the, the front of our strategy. It's more that if we see something that's very attractive, then we will make room for that. But we're not leading with that as our strategy. Our strategy is internal growth. Our strategy is the building these lines of business. And if we see something along the way that's very attractive, then we would definitely take a look at it. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, is it more so focused on, say, your local media business, um, which we haven't really dug into yet, but are you still prioritizing any potential acquisitions through that lens of expanding your local um, media business? We don't at the moment have any active conversations on acquisitions uh, in the local space. We've definitely looked. Uh, it's definitely an area that's very interesting for us. I think there's a lot of great innovation taking place in local. We have a winning formula. And so now expanding that winning formula to more cities is, is critical for us. And so at the moment, we're focused on just adding cities um, and adding, adding, adding the ones. We have a little bit of an algorithm that tells us which cities we think would be most likely uh, to be profitable for us in the long term. And so that, that's where we're focusing our time and effort. Um, we have about a dozen cities right now. Next year, our plan is to grow to at least 25. Got it. Got it. You don't have any active conversations for local media. Do you have any active conversations for acquisitions in general? We don't have anything that's super active right now. We've definitely had conversations with people that we admire, um, companies that we think are exciting, doing things that are similar to us or have similar cultures to us, and that we think would be additive to what we do. So, um, mm-hmm. we're, you know, the nice part about being in the media space is um, they know us and we know them. And, uh, you know, it's it's great to see how people do and get updates on their business. And at some point, it may make sense to pull the trigger and, and do an acquisition or do a merger or do something like that. I would say there's nothing active right this second. Got it. All right. Sounds good. Something to keep an eye on. But let's get into local media then. So um, you're uh, on the trajectory to reach 25 cities. Um, You mentioned that you're kind of exploring new cities to add into the mix, but you have some sort of recipe for what will equate to a profitable um, location for you. What is your kind of equation for that? Do you have like a certain like number of people that needs to be in the city population? Is it more so focused on um, potential advertising partners for that area? Um, What's the kind of um, recipe, so to speak? Well, you mentioned two of them right there. So that's uh, very smart. Look, you want to go into a city where people are already reading Axios content. You want to go into a city that has a decent number of advertising potential partnerships. You want to go into a city that's growing. So we look a lot at things like home prices, which you wouldn't expect. But if home prices are going up in a a significant way, that means demand is very high to move to that city. And that means that that city is growing. And so we'll look at GDP. We'll look at house prices. We'll look at the Axios audience. We'll look at the competition in that market. You know, how active is the competition? And... um, and then we'll make a decision based on that. We have a you know a weighting system. So uh, e- each of those columns that I just described is in a spreadsheet with a number attached to it. And there's a weighting that we've um, put to each of those. And then it, it comes out with a number that we use to help predict uh, how successful it'll be. And it, uh, it's, not, it's not something that's static. We're constantly updating it based on the information we have from the cities that we're already in, in order to help us figure out what cities make the most sense. Got it. Is that business primarily um, focused on advertising revenue at this stage, or do you have anything in the like 
I guess, classifieds kind of area or even like event calendars, things like that? We do. So um, the business basically has four components of traditional advertising. It has um, events that are put on there. You pay to put events on the calendar. There's a job board um, that you can add jobs to, which has actually been um, really good business, especially because so many people are trying to hire. And it makes sense to reach a very engaged local audience when you're trying to to do that. Um, And so all of those businesses, um, you know, we are investing in and trying to grow and we see them as different revenue streams. The other one is membership. So mm. uh, Charlotte um, started this a couple of years ago where people joined, they, they paid, they unlocked a little bit of extra content, events, things of that nature. So we're exploring how do you create membership, especially at the local level. We think that that's something that could be very exciting uh, for people you know, within a city. Right. And Charlotte was one of your acquisitions, correct? It was, yes. The Charlotte agenda was acquired. It's now Axios Charlotte. We have an office there. Uh, and that was a great acquisition. You know, the the team was a great cultural fit. They were doing a phenomenal job. They were very profitable as a local media company. And they had basically enacted the playbook that we were about to do. And uh, Ted, who's over there, uh, who owned the company, reached out to us and said, look, I think you're about to do what I've already done here in Charlotte. Why don't you take a look at my business? Because I'd love to be involved. I'd love to help you launch other cities. And when we took a deeper look at the Charlotte agenda, we realized this is actually probably 90, 95% of what we were going to do anyway. And by acquiring them, we gained uh, people who were knowledgeable in doing it. They'd been doing it for the last few years. All of the data, what worked, what didn't work. And um, a brand that was, you know, in a really good place. And so that one made a lot of sense. And I think to your point, there may be others that make sense like that along the way as we go into different cities. Got it. Um, And from like a revenue perspective, because there is the opportunity to have a good degree of scale in this business, you can add more, like more cities, more towns, even you can get pretty granular with it if you wanted to. Um, and even go international, honestly, do you feel like this will eventually become like the lion's share of revenue? Or do you see even like the Axios HQ business eventually becoming your, you know, bread and butter, so to speak, when it comes to a revenue perspective? Or ultimately, are you trying to keep it fairly balanced across all of these businesses? Uh, I think that that will, will be dictated by the market. Right. So, you know, if Axios HQ takes off and ends up being a massive success, then that'll be the dominant form of revenue for the business. If local does it, then then local would be, you know, my hope is that they all succeed um, and that we're able to have a very diverse revenue stream coming from each of these lines of business. That's what makes a very sustained modern media company, right, to have lots of diverse lines of revenue where you're not worried about any particular advertiser or any particular line of business declining because of something that happens. And you can focus on the company um, and and just keep keep growing and keep um, adding new services and new features. That's my hope. My hope is that as Axios HQ and local and pro grow, that they are large enough and sustainable enough where we are able to keep innovating. That, 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 that's, that's the dream, right? To keep, keep bringing new lines of business, keep innovating, um, because that's what's interesting, right? To keep growing. Absolutely. I'm also curious about your advertising business for your 
national product, your kind of an original um, Axios model. Are you finding that your advertising partners are interested in some of these new businesses that you're launching? Do you have national partners that are um, going into areas like Charlotte or um, your other local you know, publications and wanting to do, um, you know, honed in advertising deals there? Like, are you finding people are signing larger deals? Do you find that there's clients that are specific for each of these businesses? Or how are you kind of taking your advertisers along on the ride? Absolutely, that's the case. So when we think about it, we picture uh, a flywheel that takes place between all of these businesses with smart professionals being at the center of that flywheel, that we're appealing to smart professionals. We create content for smart professionals. That's our, all of our business touch smart professionals in some way, shape, or form, right? So our media business, we're giving you the national news that you need. We're not pro-business. We'll give you the industry news that you need. In our local business, we'll give you the city news that you need. And then in the HQ business, we'll cover the company that you are working for, or maybe your school district, or maybe your congressional district, right, um, where you're receiving information about your community. And so that's how we think about, you know, our audience and our business. And we have a lot of crossover. So to your point, there are a lot of national advertisers that now advertise on our local product because they see the opportunity to tell their story, but at a local level. The type of advertising that works best in local is when it is very specific to that market. So when you see an ad that is calling out Washington, D.C. or Charlotte or um, you know Austin or Dallas, that it's specific to that market. And if it is, then we've seen an incredibly high interaction rate because people are really interested in, oh, I hear that this is happening. I want to take a look at that. I also want to ask, I know we're kind of nearing the end of this conversation, but we didn't really touch on video yet. Um, you do have your HBO show. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to know what your kind of, I guess, focus is or strategy is for the TV or streaming or digital video kind of um, end of the business. Um, you also have podcasting going on as well. Um, but how do those kind of multimedia assets fit into the business model for 2022? Are you kind of just primarily focused on HBO or do you have any other kind of projects in the work in that regard? Well, we recently hired a, a head of original programming, Erica Winograd, who came over. She's got a great background from uh, Vox and Refinery29, so she's built these types of businesses before. We plan on, on continuing to build. I think that it's a great time, right? Streaming companies need content. Uh, we have a lot of uh, IP that we can use to develop that content. And so it's just finding the right type of content for this moment in time where I think we have a unique edge and where streaming services need that content in order to, to drive engagement. So we're very much focused on new ideas. Uh, we love the HBO show. We won an Emmy for it. It's fantastic. Um, you know, that, that, that was super exciting. And so now, you know, how do we expand that? We, again, believe that smart brevity, even in video, is going to make a lot of sense. People do want to be informed. I think, you know, the type of content that we're going to do is going to still be, again, aimed at smart professionals who want to learn something, want to want to gain some knowledge in some way, shape, or form. And so how do we develop content to help you navigate the world, right? And, you know, it might be about the future of space. It might be about the future of cryptocurrency, but you want to learn about it, but you want to learn about it in a way that's smart and efficient. You don't want to spend three hours, you know, learning about cryptocurrency. For sure. That topic especially is very dense. So yes. you could lose a lot of audience um, 
to just getting really in the weeds there. But I guess also from like an advertising standpoint, do you have people who are um, advertisers who are interested in getting into like video branded content partnerships or um, doing more video focused campaigns with you as you kind of grow out this area? So there's actually a separation. We have a studio business that creates smart brevity paid content that helps our partners when they're trying to tell a story, tell that story in video or audio or written form um, through our studio business. And that business uh, basically doubled this year. So there's a lot of people that are trying to inform um, the general public about the great things that they're doing as a company, but they don't know how to tell that story, especially at this moment in time where attention spans are shrinking. So smart brevity in paid content, I think makes a lot of sense. And we've seen uh, the return on investment there. Separate from that, we have um, you know, our production side, which is uh, editorially driven, which is the HBO show and other concepts like that. And so um, they, they are two different businesses. The way that we think about um, the production business is we want to sell the license to that IP or to that show, right? We want to create mm-hmm. that show and we want to sell a license to that show. We don't want that to be advertising based. Um, the studio content it is 100% advertising based. It is, you know, tell, what story are you trying to tell? We'll help you tell it in the most efficient way possible. All right. So last question for you. We've talked about all of your different kind of revenue diversification opportunities and in the businesses that you're launching um, or that you've recently launched. What are some other trends in the media space that you yourself are particularly interested in? Um, I particularly am interested in the kind of the crypto blockchain um, exploration that media is taking on right now. Is that something that you're kind of keeping an eye on or are there other kinds of areas that you are, you know, following closely to see how they could apply to the Axios business um, maybe next year? I mean, I'm super interested right now in obviously SaaS related opportunities where you're using IP that you have that is unique that you can then sell multiple times, right? So the software business, I think, is a great business. So so I think about that as a very attractive area for us to continue to explore. We're also very interested in the the production space and the the streaming space um, because I think that there'll continue to be growth and innovation there. How do you, as people stop watching traditional news shows, how do you help you know, a Netflix or an Apple create news, you know, create mm-hmm. things that, that they need at the moment. They don't really want to touch news, but at some point there's going to be this really interesting thing that takes place where um, if you're only subscribed to Apple and uh, Netflix and Peacock and wherever else, you, you don't really have a great way to get news and information, you get a great, lots of entertainment. Um, but, but you also sort of crave at least some updates uh, in terms of what's happening in the world. So I'm always thinking about what's the next wave of innovation that's going to come on the on the TV side of the business. And then we're constantly thinking about our own business, the, the traditional media business. What's the next innovation that's going to take place? And are we on top of it? Are we learning as much as we can about it? And so, um, you know, we, we are uh, definitely studying all of these areas. And in fact, we cover media right with Sarah Fisher and her newsletter. 
part of the reason we do that is so that we can stay on top of what's happening and and learn from the innovation that's taking place. Yeah, absolutely. That is the digital business model too. So it, it really works to help with that uh, business growth. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and going through all these different aspects of your business. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, I think there's been a lot going on. And so I really wanted to dive deep into it. And I appreciate you allowing us to do that. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Uh, I look forward to doing it again. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode.